at that point I just went it's got, I can't take this anymore it's got to end and so I walked out and you know walked down this kind of little side street walked up and tried to jump off this building and you know and then yeah just all, all of that kind of all of that journey sort of began really. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage program here in lockdown, we're still in lockdown. And I've got Danny Rahim with me in lockdown. Thanks for coming. Ooh. Thanks for getting your hair done and all <laughs> shaped up for the conversation. Um, we met not that long ago, but have been firm friends ever since. Uh, I know we both are on the speaking circuit. You're an actor and you do so many things uh, to tell your story, but I guess other people's stories as well. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Petra. And yes, it was an absolute delight meeting you. Uh, I think it was one of the, at one of the Lions events and, um, sharing your story. I was very inspired. Um, and yeah, it's sort of, um, I guess we kind of bounce off each other, don't we, with ideas and cool and quirky sure. and weird ideas and where to go and how to help and spread the message. So yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's been really easy and natural. And recently talking a bit about meditation and how that affects uh, both of our lives has been pretty fun as well. Um, yeah. But I actually haven't seen you fully speak and tell your story. And I know some of the, the low lights, I guess. And mm -hmm. um, I certainly know the amazing things that you're, you're doing now uh, kind of in the world and to, to share your story story. Um, first of all, give us a little bit of, of a context of just who are you? What do you do? Who am um, I? Who, I? I always like that as a loaded <laughs> What a profound question. question. Yeah. Who am I? This could, this could take a whole hour in itself. Um, okay, who am I? So I'm Danny Rahim. Um, I'm an actor and as you say, mental health speaker. Um, you may have seen me or, or those watching may have seen me in shows um, such as uh, EastEnders or Primeval or Citizen Khan or Vera. DCI Banks, a lot of kind of sort of ITV cop drama stuff. Um, uh, and, and, and essentially mental health has always been sort of uh, in my family from when I was younger. I'm sure we'll go on to it a little mm -hmm. bit more um, later. But when I was 13, my mum got particularly uh, ill and uh, I sort of became her carer for a number of years. Um, and then in, in 2012, I myself felt very ill. My mental health deteriorated, um, which ended up in me uh, attempting to take my own life. Um, and post that was kind of recovery, rehabilitation, whatever we want to call it, um, learning, I, I sort of say. Um, and then, you know, this kind of mission to help others and, and, and ensure that those um, who do get into kind of um, tricky positions in life or very unexpected times know that, that you know, there, there are other options um, and there are other ways to get support, which I didn't sort of know at the time. So that became sort of life's mission, life's purpose in a way. So you've got acting as kind of one component. That's the kind of creative, expressive. And then the other side is kind of giving back almost that, that little element of it had to have meant something. All the stuff that my mum has experienced today and myself, it had to, had to have been for something. And, and uh, that's where the kind of speaking, the learning, then the speaking began. Yeah, and I guess what drew me to your story is you're that quintessential adversity to advantage person mm -hmm. where it was tough and it led you to be on the brink of your own kind of suicidal ideation, your own despair. Yeah. And then there's this process of you bouncing back from that in order for it to, to, to give us uh, kind of your mission in giving back. So give us, let's, let's just dive deep a little bit into what yeah, those yeah. circumstances were for you. And I guess what I'm really interested in is the the kind of messy middle from when you're at your own worst place yeah. to the great kind of public platform supporting people today. Like how do you make those changes in between? So just give us a bit of context to what it was like growing up and the mental health stuff that your mom was going through. So we just have a picture of, of where it led yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, I grew up, I was born in London to parents of um, Irish and Pakistani descent. So dad was Irish, Irish Catholic, and 
Mum was, um, although she wasn't very religious, her mum was Muslim. So when those two got together, um, well, well, actually, they kind of were abandoned by their family. So religion kind of played quite a big part early on. We grew up non-religious as kids, um, but we were always very respectful of mum. But there was always this kind of uneasiness in kind of family gatherings and stuff. It was a very, very different time back then. Anyway, um, mum and dad broke up when I was about three or four years old. Um, so essentially, it was a single parent family. Um, and I guess the next part of that story that, that, that becomes kind of relevant is uh, when I was 13, mum uh, had a car crash. Um, she was eight months pregnant. She lost her baby. Um, and so she then got postnatal depression. Um, she was suicidal. She was sectioned. So when I was sort of 13, 14, um, mum was constantly in hospital. I was sent to live with my grandmother and my two younger sisters at the time were both sent uh, into kind of kinship foster care, the care of social services, essentially. So throughout that period between sort of 13 and um, 13, say 18, um, mental health was always there, but it wasn't called mental health. It was, it was mum's not very well. Um, you know, she'll get better when she coming back. No one ever knew. Um, I would be, I was sort of her lead care, I guess, from the age of 14, 15. So all the calls would come to me, whether it be from hospitals from the doctors, whatever would come to kind of notify me, or they would say, you know, who's her kind of next of kin, but they all had my number, not really realizing how young I was. So all the calls about what she's up to in hospital, um, you know, how bad she is essentially, all the, all the calls from her, you know, two, three in the morning, shouting, screaming, like just, just not very well, essentially. But that was, that was from a very young age. And I think from that point, um, I just, there were times that as a kid, I would lie in bed crying at 14, 15. I remember writing on a, on a, on a, like, I hate my life. I don't want to live anymore. I was very, very young. And I remember I put it under my bed and actually my mum found it years later. I forgot I did it. But there was something that just kind of happened at that point that I thought, right, you've got a choice here. We can either, this can either break you and pull you down, or you've got to get moving or we've got to go the other way. And so sort of, started to build this kind of resilience this this uh you know it's not going to break me down it's not going to get me down. i'm just going to have to keep plowing on and i had jobs and 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 did various things when i was a kid to make money i was helping my 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 grandmother because i was living with her at the time pay a mortgage i was 15 you know i was i was i was a kid and i was i had there was no support for her so i had to help her pay for this house that she was in so you had to find a way and i did find you know many ways um not always the right ways but it was just you know survival what you're going to do yeah literally and I remember really strangely at the time I remember um I was listening to a lot of Jay-Z at the time and he has a he I saw an interview of him and he said when you've been at a point where you're eating nothing but bread for a week and your your treat is bread with a bit of sugar on it you ain't ever going back there and I remember that was what I was doing at the time and I was like this ain't this is it and you know, I was also, as well as providing for my grand's mortgage um, or, or her re- all the repayments she had, I was then supporting my two sisters whenever they had a school trip. I was like, they shouldn't be left out. They shouldn't not be able to go. It's not their fault. You know, they were skies 10 years younger, pages uh, 20 years younger. So, oh no, actually 15 years younger. So I was like, why should these kids be disadvantaged? Why should You're my still young- seeing them and having some sort of relationship? Yeah, yeah. Pa- pa- Paige, the youngest, was very young, but Sky, I would still check in. We had each other's number, but she was taken off into care. So she, it wasn't like she was isolated, but she had a different family she was supposed to live with. She was in a particular house, and like, but we, the communication was still there. And you know, bless her, she had her own issues, but she's absolutely nailing it as well. So. Um, you know, fair play to her. I have a lot of respect for her. Um, Did you at the time, were you talking to anyone, getting support from anyone, whether it was some, an older, some, somebody, a role model or a, um, a, an older person, a family member, like where were you going to get some kind of support through this time? The, the, the person that I had who was, has been very supportive during this time was my uncle. Um, and my uncle was, well, he's a retired police officer now, but our relationship, I remember when we were kids and there was a lot of domestic violence in the house, he'd come and pick me up and he'd just take me away for a weekend. And, you know, he took me on my first ever holiday. He was there as kind of like a father figure, but he had his son, but he, you know, we're still like best mates now. And he's always been like my rock. 
Um, but at that time, he was working quite a lot. So it wasn't full-on support. He was a police officer working lots of hours, quite senior, doing his bit. And, um, you know, he would just check in every now and again. But our relationship then wasn't it as it was now, because I don't think he knew the extent of how bad mum was. So essentially, the people that I leaned on, um, firstly, I, I, which my girlfriend at the time, my first ever girlfriend, a girl called Rachel, um, her family was so kind to me. They gave me a little bit, so they, they gave me the, the, you know, if we're talking about Maslow's, they gave me the shelter and they gave me the food. Do you know what I mean? They just made sure that I had the most basic things to exist. And, and um, you know, I will never forget that, that kindness. And I guess it's one of the things that in my head that makes me think it was passed on to me at that time, kindness, and therefore it's my responsibility to give some of that kindness back. So... I then got at 18, 19, um, I leave school. Um, but prior to that, I was quite, I was quite smart when I was at school. I got put into all the top sets, but when mum got particularly unwell during my GCSE years, um, they noticed a deterioration in, in, in kind of, you know, academia and they, they knew something was wrong. And so what they actually said to me, one of my teachers, um, he said to me, listen, you know, we know you've got a talent in there. We know, but we know there's a lot going on at home. And so, we're going to set some targets for you, some opportunities that, that if you don't achieve. So they said that, you know, if you don't go and audition for the school play, you're not going to be in the football team. You're not Because what I was doing was I was coming in in the mornings. I was I would come in at lunch, use my free smart card to get £1.50 worth of food and then just leave. And that was my GCSE year. So quite an important year. And I just there was no one pushing me forwards or supporting me. I was just kind of doing my own thing. And everything's changed practically overnight. So you're in a heightened state of survival and stress. Yeah, and yeah just it's just meeting your basic needs. That. Got, just got to get on, exactly. And um, so, so long and short of that was they, um, they helped me uh, audition for drama. The drama teacher said, look, we want you to audition for drama school. They, they saw my A-level devised piece. And so they helped me write the applications. And I got into a couple of drama schools. And I got into a school in London that I was going to go to, but last minute it was decided things at home were too chaotic and I would have had to probably have been living at home. And so I went in, in the end, I ended up going to Manchester. But the day before I went to university, two days before my mum called the police and got me arrested because essentially I walked in the house. She was grabbing my grandmother who was very old at the time over the sink, like almost strangling her. And I, and I was like, what are you doing? I pulled her off. I said, look, leave it. I've got my little sister who's a, just a kid. She's four or five years old. And she's seeing all of this. She's standing at the corner. It was like something you see in the movies, right? So I pulled her off. I said, look, stop all that nonsense. I'm going to bed. I've got work tomorrow. Just anyway, she says, don't you touch me. Get out of my room. Whatever. Anyway, she calls the police. The police come over. They said, look, we can't kick him out because he's registered as having to live here, as living here. So um, she said, well, I want him out. And she said, well, there, there hasn't been an allegation made. But she said, he, well, he pulled me, he pushed me, he, he hurt me. And they were like, okay, so you're making an allegation of assault. And she said, yeah. So they handcuffed me, took me out. And I spent the, the night in a cell the day before I was about to go to university. So just constant, constant, constant. And, and actually that arrest, I didn't know it at the time because when I got to the police station, they said to me, um, I said, look, what is this? They said, we're going to let you off with a caution. I hadn't been arrested before, right? So let you off with a caution. They said, if you keep your, your, your nose clean at university, you'll have no issues. I said, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah. A caution goes on your record. So all of my work in America, since that I've had to, to go over and do stuff, I've had to go and get special visas and this and lawyers. It's been an absolute nightmare. But fortunately, I've got like an overarching sort of visa that covers all of that now. But it's a nightmare, you know? And the, the, the kind of repercussions um, of, of all of this kind of stuff going on with mum from years before. So anyway, that happened. I went to university. We're still getting the calls. We're still, she was still financially dependent on me, but I could manage the finances. Transferring some money was the least of my worries. You know, it was more the, the, the mental and emotional sort of abuse that was sort of happening on a weekly basis. Being called up to, you're a useless son. You've never, never done anything for anyone but yourself la, 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 all this stuff you know and all you're doing really is being having to grow up before your time yeah. trying to give out money look after siblings do everything and i yeah. imagine your dad's not in the picture yeah no he wasn't in the picture yeah so. and so um you're stepping up but then you're hearing that you're useless and and yeah. that whole sort of thing yeah yeah and it's only recently it's only in the last year or so which we'll come on to which i've sort of become aware of that i i you know, I don't begrudge mum at all because I know that, that, that she's not well and, you know, um, but 
it was a level of emotional abuse that I didn't even realize what that term was at the time, but the impact that it then has later on in life in relationships and stuff, it's all sort of coming out now, right? So I go to university, I have all of that stuff um, going on, but I'm just cracking on, you know, just getting on with it. I've got a community, I've got friends, and I'm just trying to kind of distract myself. Graduate from drama school. I'm very lucky when I come out, I land a great agent, and straight away I land this theater job, which um, we do it in the UK a couple of times. It was about the Western involvement in Afghanistan at the time. Do it in London, do it in London twice, get nominated for an Olivier Award, then take it to America, touring America for like six months. So career-wise, like we're off, right? We're yeah, just, yeah. we're going, things are going great. I come back, I'm on EastEnders. I then leave, I go and film at this series called Primeval in Canada for six months. So on paper, yeah, my yeah, friends yeah. were like, how the heck have you We're done that thing? Like killing it, killing Straight it. Doing... Yeah. So, but there was always this stuff. The mum stuff was still there. I was just managing it, right? And sure. I, I always said and the happy... You, was your fear that she, you would get the call that she'd taken her life or that like, what was the, the biggest fear in that time? Do you know what? I, um, I, by that time, I had um geared myself that eventually I will get that call so that wasn't enough because they you know from getting those calls at 14 15 that your mum's hanging off this or doing that that you you kind of become a bit numb to it and I remember having to go in and see a, a, a therapist and, I, and they said look would you be um do you think you'd be happier if your mum was dead and I said yes Whoa, that's quite a question. Yeah, do you even you, have to but ask? I think they were worried if I was going to harm her. I don't, I don't know what it was, but that's the question they asked me. And I said, yes, not because I ever want any pain for her, but the pain that, that, that is a byproduct of what she's doing is like, it's too much for me. I can't handle it. Like, yeah. And she know, was and, obviously in pain as well. Yeah, 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 totally. But it was just, it was grinding, grinding, grinding me down. And I was being strong and just cracking on and doing my stuff and, you know, there wasn't all this conversation about sort of therapy and mental health and what is health and well-being and all this stuff that we're talking about now. There's none of it. It's just your mum's not very well. Like, you know, you'll be all right, mate. Keep keep going. Like, come on, you'll you'll get through it. Don't worry. Like, well, it's all that stuff. And but it was obviously building up in your body, in your mind, to lead exactly. you to a point of being in total despair yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and so where it took you, yeah. And that and and exactly that's that's what. So 2012, I came back from the TV show. Um, I was filming, you know, I was, I was very, very lucky. I earned some good money, bought a flat, um, you know, for a, what was I at the time? 24, maybe 20, like, a, you know, a young kid still and just yeah. bought his own flat, just finished off this show, done that, done this, done this. Life was great. But I had been neglecting the the kind of processing that needed to happen. Um, so I get back. My dad has recently passed away, which I didn't know him particularly well. But this, this, I went to the funeral with my mom and saw all my grandparents who were on that on his side that I was very close to, and they were all very upset. And just kind of began this thing of like, I'll never ever get to know this man. I'll never ever get to have a conversation or hear his voice or know his thoughts or anything. So that was then one thing. Then as a result of him passing away, mum got particularly unwell again and, and and took an overdose and was on life support. So that happened very, very quickly. Then I was riding uh, on my little Vespa on the way to work and the Vespa slipped and I fell off and broke my foot. So then I had physical trauma as well as he met all the stuff. So then that, that then meant that I couldn't do this job that I was supposed to be doing for the BBC. And then just to top it off, I must have been in a terrible mood and I was just, just, just closing myself off and I ended up breaking up with my girlfriend at the time. So it was like every single time it was like, bang, bang, bang. It was like, come on, like how much more can one person take? And uh, yeah, and, and subsequently um, cast comes off. I go for a night out with my friends, um, drinking a lot, which I shouldn't have been. And, um, and, and yeah, at the, at the end of it, my friend gets a message on his phone saying, hey, I, I know you're out with Danny tonight. Please don't tell him I'm dating other people. I don't want him to be upset. But I saw that pop up on the phone and my heart just went. And at that point, I just went, it's got, I've, I can't take this anymore. It's got to end. And so I walked out and, you know, walked down this kind of little side street, walked up and tried to jump off this building. And, you know, and then, yeah, just all, all of that kind of, all of that journey sort of began really. And, the rehabilitation essentially kind of came after that. 
So essentially all of these, and it's interesting, isn't it? The, the three to five kind of terribly, terribly unlucky things that happen in quick succession. Yeah. We could say that from 14, there were things that were terrible that were occurring and building up over time, mm-hmm. but suddenly it all comes to a head, right? And it leads you to this stark decision where you're just like, I need a way out. Uh, And you try and take it, it sounds like. Um, And you you then have to wake up, I guess. Like, what was that bit like? So it was was a a really interesting experience. I ended up, you know, in front of this, this, um, in front of this taxi driver's car on the floor. And um, he got out and he's like, are you okay? And I was just shaking. It was just all a bit of a mess. And... um, uh, then the ambulance came and took me to hospital and, uh, then my uncle, you know, I, I think I called someone called him. Then he flew down to the hospital and he just said, he looked at me and I was just white. I was in this chair in this hospital and, um, I knew straight away. I was like, why have I done this? The kind of what's going to happen now is going to be even worse. I'm going to feel worse. You idiot, Danny, why did you do that? At the time, I was like, why did you let her beat you like this? But it was nothing about this girl. It was just a white, you know, she, it was just, just our time came to an end. And um, it, yeah, it was just, I didn't realize it was the kind of culmination of many things. I saw it as this isolated moment. But when I look back, I could see the buildup of it. And um, I just knew at that point, I was like, this has to be worth something. This can't have just happened for nothing. This has to be worth something. And so... So that thought came pretty soon or in hospital or near after? No, or? no. so I came, I came out and I was at home and I was, I was you know, and it, it was, took about six months and my uncle literally was like, he was like, it doesn't matter what it costs, we will spend whatever we need. They're not, my uncle's not particularly wealthy or anything, but he was like, your health and well-being comes before my house and this and whatever. And so we tried the hypnotherapy and the CBT and like all the things right um and one thing that i said i wouldn't do was just a personal thing is i just didn't want to take tablets because i knew what that had how that had affected mum, and it wasn't in a particularly good way mm. um so i said i'm going to try every single avenue that i can whether it's just the kind of natural side of things and exercising and diet and you know all of those cause or whether it's meditation or my like whatever i'm going to try everything and i'm going to learn and i'm going to read and i'm going to research and i need to understand why i got to this position um, you know, and, and, and set myself up some, some kind of barriers and pr- parameters of like, what do I need to look after myself? I, what, you know, look after yourself first, and then you can expend that energy on those around you. But if you don't look after yourself first, then, then you're useless to those around you. So that's where it sort of began. Um, and that came maybe, maybe sort of a month or two after the learning and the research while I was at home and I was recovering and I, was, I started to read a lot. So that all happened then. But then it was just um, an opportunity that came up, which was um, Johnny, um, who we mentioned before, who's, who I went to drama school with and who was a very dear friend of mine, but also was having his own issues. And I didn't know he was going through his stuff and he didn't know I was going through my stuff, yeah. which was the irony, right? We're in yeah, the year. So John, let me just, for our listeners, that's Johnny Benjamin, who's a mental health campaigner. We've had him on the podcast a couple episodes ago. Um, and had his own kind of experience of mental illness as well as um, suicidal um, ideation, right? Uh, yeah. And you guys are are that close, so um, you, yeah. you reconnected with him. Is that we we reconnect? And, and at the time, it, it just so happened that 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 had happened with me. But then, Stranger on the Bridge came out the doc, his documentary, yeah. which and blew I was up. Like, yeah. yeah, which blew out. And I was like, mate, I cannot believe you. Go, why didn't you call? Because when he left drama, we were doing a show together in the final year. I said, why didn't you ever call? Like, the teachers said that he had to, he was going home with some personal issues. And we were all messaging him saying, hope mum and dad are okay. Ah. We didn't know it was him. Yeah. Until a lot later. So we reconnected and we spoke about a lot of stuff and how we had got to that position. And it, isn't it funny? And we became sort of like each other's like little support. I remember Johnny and I um, were living together at the time and um, he, he said to me, look, I've got, the, I've got to go and do this, this talk um, this talk today, but I really don't feel too great. Would you, would you mind coming with me? And I was like, absolutely, let's go. Like, I'll be there. I, you know, we'll get through it, don't worry. And um, so we did this talk and at the end, um, it was actually at his brother's company. Um, his brother had asked us to come in and his brother said, look, Danny, don't feel obliged, but do you want to, stand up and just talk a little bit about you guys at university and how you kind of didn't know and how this you know you guys were so close but you didn't know all of this was going on I said yeah you know if if you want me to so 
stood up and spoke a little bit with Johnny about our experience. And then they came back and said it was so powerful seeing two guys together talking about their, their kind of um, mental well-being and how they, they had both had kind of relapses um, but had no idea that each other were going through this stuff. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and so then when this kind of idea came that, you know, I said I was very passionate about children and kids and making sure that, that if we can get this knowledge in very early, and that's, very, that's also Johnny's passion, so I said, you know, why don't we put something together and, and go to some schools and talk to some kids and, you know, just help out where we can. And schools became universities and universities and colleges and this. And went, I, I actually went back to my old um, high school teacher did and did you? a talk there. Yeah. And wow. That was, that was an, an incredible experience in itself, you know, because he had no idea that this stuff was going on behind the scenes when he was guiding me and mentoring me. So it was really nice to give something back to him, you know. And uh and then that that kind of that kind of um, we were just going round just just everywhere just and then companies were asking us to come in and and then sort of came this realization for me that we're going into all of this this was about a year and a half ago we're going into all of these companies well schools and you know all these places and we're talking about mental health and we're opening up and we're we're stimulating all this conversation but then we sort of leave and and we never talk about it again. And there's no kind of like through line with this. And it seems like a bit of a disservice for for everyone involved, really. So I then took some more courses and I was like, do you know what? I want to kind of deliver some kind of like ongoing program that integrates with companies or or whatever, some kind of like half day training. This was like 18 months ago. I had never done it before, but I was like, you know, the idea was, that we would go into the, my initial idea was to go into schools and do workshops with kids because I was like, I don't, if you're standing there and you're just doing kind of PowerPoint presentations, people get bored, but if they're engaged, then, then they remember it more. And so I, I did a couple of days at a friend's school, just trying stuff out with kids, like, you know, and getting them to talk and do active listening. And what does that look like? And move, and they loved it. And uh, we just thought, right, there's, there's something in this and we kind we should put together a kind of a bit of a bigger plan. And, um, you know, look at ways that we can integrate with HR processes and kind of all the, the, the kind of um, structured things that needs to happen at companies, but also how do we integrate this kind of interactive dynamic learning rather than just sitting and preaching, everyone's on their phone texting. I was like, no one's really, it's, it's it's boring for everyone. And that kind of took off. Yeah. Yeah. So now you're giving back in a big way. Yeah. And as you said, it's sort of organically developed in in a certain way. Um, I've got a couple questions just about the journey to getting there. Yeah, I love the way your story mirrors mine a little bit, which was like total rock bottom and then experiment and be like, I'm going to try everything. What have I got to lose? I'm going to test everything. Right. Um, for me, I gave myself a deadline to end my life in a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But it, essentially, I thought, I have to fix myself. I have to invest, invest in myself if I'm going to be any good to anyone else. Yeah. What were the key things that you learned from that time? Or what were the, the things you tried that actually benefited you the most? Because I think it's really useful, first of all, for people to realize it's not a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. Yes, there's some like core components that can affect all of us. That's their science behind but some people, different things kind of suit them better. So I'm curious, first of all, about what were the things that really sort of worked for you or maybe even informed sort of ongoing practices to look after your own well-being? So we, so I started, I did all the stuff. I mean, I was, I was sitting in chairs with guys ringing bells in the side of my ears and, you know, all sorts of, you know, that might work for some people. It didn't work for me. And actually it be, I, I became very cynical very quickly, spending a lot of money, do it, trying all these therapies. And it was yeah. like, that is just weird. Um, <laughs> and, but I thought, right, let's go back to the cause here. What does a body need? Your, our bodies are so resilient, right? They're so smart. They can recover. Uh, what, what are the things that it needs? It needs, some sunlight it's like i imagine but i was like you know i look i remember seeing a plant and i said what does a plant need it needs sunlight it needs attention it needs so attention for me was communication connectivity yeah. it needs um sunlight and water so and, and that's it yeah. like what are the basic things so i then i then said right the beginning of my journey is going to be it's going to be the seed the seed of growth and, and my seed is going to be sleep eat exercise and 
D was don't drink. <laughs> yeah. And, As um, opposed to drink. <laughs> drink. Yeah, well, I put drink in there and then everyone was looking at it like, what does this drink bit mean? And I was like, nah, okay, let's go. This is don't drink or drink. It had like a do not do it signing. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that was my seed. That was my beginning. It was like, okay, I know that on days that I don't feel great, one or all of these are neglected. And if, if I'm not feeling great, it's my responsibility to be respecting these things that I know make me feel better. And so every time I had a bad day or a low day, I would go back and check my seed. I would go back and check, like, am I, am I giving this, this plant, this flower, the space to grow and to recover? And the basic nurturing, yes. just like baseline. Yeah, and then exactly. once that's in, you can sort of add in whatever people yeah. add. And, and, and so, so the basics were there and the exercise was in and, also the learning was going alongside this reading trying different things but trying different things for myself rather than things that were kind of like push up like you know nice suggestions from friends and then I would explore them myself rather than saying do this go here do that do that yeah. there had to be a, a level of aut- autonomy in there for me to find it um and then meditation began I think we were actually didn't 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 we start off on this meditate didn't I suggest this meditation thing way way back it was we were in a little group weren't we yeah 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 um, so then the meditation, um, a lot of mindfulness. Um, and I think what it's kind of moved into now um, is spirituality. But I don't say that in a, in a kind of religious term. I, I say that in a term of, of kind of self-realization, self-exploration, self-awareness, self-awareness yeah. self-understanding. And, um, and like accountability. So that means looking at the tough stuff as well. Yeah. Where you're not taking responsibility, right? Yeah. And, and um, you know, I, um, I am doing a counseling course at the moment because I wanted to kind of, you know, I had people who are, who are always coming up at the end of talks. And I thought I can give them my honest, you know, open experience and share how I did things. But I also want to come from a little place of academia and make sure that I'm not misguiding them or not upsetting or not saying the wrong things. Sure. Um, and through that, you know, where I'm in week seven or eight of it now, there is so much self-discovery that's happening of like, why do I think, why do I act? Why is, why is that behavior enabled from there? And I absolutely love this. It's like, it's like the endless, you know, you can just keep going and going and going down these rabbit holes, but I love exploring and fundamentally understanding why do I think this way? Why do we think this way? Why do humans in general think this way? Um, so it's a combination of good habits, the seed. It's, um, it's meditation, meditation, uh, mindfulness, whatever, you know, one and the same, however you want to look at it. But yeah. having those moments to sit and reflect and breathe and sit still with yourself and not be worried about having time and space alone. Um, and I, was, I realized that I was very bad at that. Like previously... I think in two years of living in this flat, when I first moved in, I, um, I didn't, I, I must've cooked twice because after the breakup, I, I, I always saw myself as alone. All the activities that I did with my ex-girlfriend at the time was cooking together. It was like, this space was communal. It was like collaborative. And then I was alone. So I would go out every night and eat and be with people because that was my social, that was my connectivity. But once I had retouched in with myself and gone, what do I, why am I doing that? Why is there this desire? Then I did start cooking myself and I started cooking for the housemate and I started to kind of do all these things that allowed me to feel connected, but also a a sense of achievement. Yeah. Like I've kind of, yeah, cooking for myself, but, but also I would cook. So now we rotate. So I will cook one night and there's two other, two others. And so I will cook. And, and then they will cook. And so you kind of, you cook you once. You still get the community feel. Exactly. And we're in the kitchen, just chilling and chatting together and how's your days. And, um, so really, really big, big shifts in the last year, I would say, I think when I was very lucky enough that this, this kind of the, the helping when we were, when we were going to schools and talking, we would do it like for free. There was no, we didn't want, we just said, here's what we're doing. And eventually <laughs> it was funny. I think, um, who was, I, I think it was, there was someone that said when people pay, they pay attention. Mm. so we would go out and we'd be doing all these talks and people were messing us around and like you know johnny's not not so much me but johnny is like you know he's a, name, and, he's yeah. a name and he's doing yeah. stuff in this thing and they'd be like hey could you just make it 330 instead of four on a site but actually as soon as as soon as you know a monetary value was put on it then people were like oh thank you so much for coming in like we're so great and actually what we do now is we take 
we take if we get paid by a big company we would take that and then we'll use that and we'll do a school as well so it kind of balances out so the travel costs etc etc of going somewhere we take the money from that and we use that towards that so it's kind of he always says like a little kind of robin hood kind of like well and there's something about the giving back that's great for our mental health you talked about purpose and finding a way to find purpose from your own dark experiences yeah and like what's the feeling that you get from that well it's cathartic isn't it when we talk about our our issues or our experiences and we share those and we open up that vulnerability allows other people to become vulnerable when you say when you hear someone come to you and say I went through exactly the same thing last year and you're the first person I've ever told this to. You feel like, wow, I've helped that person. That person can open up now and hopefully share it with their family or their friends and have a space where it's not just this trapped little vessel that they they have to, you know, take to their, their grave with them. It starts the rehabilitation. It starts the recovery. And I always say to, you know, Johnny and I have also gone to talks and we've traveled so far and we've gone there and there've been four people in a room, but I'm always like, if, if there's four people in a room, they're interested in what we're talking about. And even if yeah. one of those people leaves feeling like they learned something or it helped them or gave them a bit of hope, um, then it's worth it. And that's how we, that's how we just go now is it that every day if we can try and help one person, that's why I kind of sort of agreed to do this with you as well, because there was a point a few years ago where actually sharing my story could have been very, very detrimental to my acting work because sure. the insurance that would come the insurance costs that would be incurred by taking me aboard as someone that was a suicide risk or whatever that may have got, you know, um, it, it, people would, would be deterred from um, taking yeah. you. And there was a moment again then when I thought, you know what, this is bigger than me and this is about helping others. And if there is a God, whatever, however we want to look at that, or, or, or if karma is going to make it that I lose a job because trying to help others, then that was the way it was meant to be but I put faith in the world that, 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 you know, that, that wouldn't happen. And actually the things that were supposed to come to me would come to me. And I, and, and that was my kind of mission to help others. Yeah. And life ends up, if you take those risks, it often becomes more purposeful and better anyway. Exactly. Um, do you have any, uh, like one top book that you would recommend? Um, I know one is hard, but maybe one that's fresh in your mind. Um, that supported you either spiritually or on your self-awareness journey? There's there. Yes. There's one book. Um, and it was called, um, Tuesdays with Maury. Tuesdays with Maury. Okay. Yeah. And it's not so much as, so, so, so what this is based on a true story, um, of a university lecturer, um, who I, I, I'm, I think he, he, he falls ill with cancer and he meets his old university um, or, or college student when he falls ill. And his his university student is a is, is like a prolific US like radio like disc jockey or something like that. But he goes and when he finds out Maury's sick, then he goes and spends every day with him. And it's it's life lessons from an old man who's kind of reached the, the end of his life and done some amazing things to a young guy. And he says, "Here's what I can teach you." I can show you, you know, and it's on, it's on love, it's relationships, it's life, it's the world, it's nature. And every Tuesday he goes to meet Maury and he gives it, there's a new theme. And I actually bought that as a book for John. No, I think either Johnny bought it for me or I bought it for Johnny. But since then I've recommended it because I think what that book means to me is someone has lived their life very fully. And you know, they always say that it's only when you get diagnosed with a terminal illness or you know that there's a short amount of time left in your life that you see the trees in a different way. You smell the plants in a different way. And that really woke me up to that is I, I'm not going to project what six months is going to be from now. I'm going to live today and I'm going to live today as fully as I can and as content as I possibly can and let the rest unfold because we can't predict what that future is going to be. We can just live in the present. I'm going to check that out. That sounds really good. Um, A couple final questions. How's your mum now? Interestingly, so I found out uh, two weeks ago that mum's actually in prison. So, yeah, <laughs> like, so you the know, the, the, gift that, the gift that keeps on giving, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, yeah, so I found out I, I hadn't heard from her for a while. I was checking in with her social worker, and so now she's in prison. And I, I, and I don't mind sharing this because I think it may help or be useful to others. Um, so she was actually in, in in not a great space. She was walking on some railway tracks. 
um, about three or four weeks ago and then the police came and said, look, she's a risk to herself and a risk to the public. And then they sectioned her and then she was released and then she did it again. So now, then they, then they put her in prison because she had some, um, she had an impending court case and they were worried that she either would harm herself or others or not make it to the court case. So they put her in prison. So over the past week, I've been speaking to my mum in a very, very, very emotional state from prison. Um, and, you know, the journey does continue. It's not fixed. It's not done. But yeah. what, what I have realized is that I have to set these little boundaries. And so, you know, if, if mum calls me and she's shouting and swearing and screaming, I'll put the phone on loudspeaker and I'll go and just do something else. And I'll let her just do her bit. And then at some point she'll go quiet and she'll say, hello, and say, hello, mum. Wow. Because I realized that I cannot be there at the end of this stuff on the, the phone because that emotional abuse that's still there and you're this, you're that, and then like, listen to me. And, 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 you know, she's blaming the world and the world did all this. And now the transport for London police officers, they're all conspiring against her. It's all part of her illness, right? But I realized if I take on that emotional baggage, yeah. that seeps then into my day with my, with my partner, with my my housemates with my friends and i have to be responsible enough to not let that happen it's my responsibility to say no not even for myself that's not how i'm looking did at you it feel, did you feel guilty at the beginning because i think this is really useful for people who are caring for someone yeah to, first of all set the boundaries and then i imagine the transition is you have to sit with uncomfortable feelings yeah. because your habit has been you call them there, you call them there from 14 yeah. years old for you yeah. is like, I, to be a good son, I have to show up. Yeah. Those sorts of messages, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I made a decision last year, um, uh, that I was going to help mum downsize to a smaller house. I paid a lot of money to help furnish it, um, to, to do the things that she needed to make her happy and content in a, in a new space because her old house had lots of like memories of, you know, um, losing the baby and domestic abuse and all that stuff. So all the medical experts advise, if you can try and get her to switch to a smaller, more manageable house, it might be the fresh start she needs. That was last September, spent three or four months. And I said to myself at that point, that was going to be, that was going to be it. That was going to be the line in the sand where she had to come and meet me in the middle and do a little bit of work herself. And I'll share with you something very quickly, which might be, might be valuable for people. So I had to go to Ealing Hospital to the, to the mental health ward there and sit and do something called a ward round, which is all of her medical professionals, her lead doctor, the nurses on the ward, blah, all of these people, they sit around and we try and social set, we make a plan for mum's future. And um, the doctor at the time, he was, mum came in, she was doing her shouting and blaming everyone and don't believe him, Danny, he's a blah, blah, you know, mm. rude words. And, um, he just sat down and he said, you know, Malika, this is my mom's, he said, Malika, what have you done to help yourself? What have you done in the past six months to alleviate some of this pressure on your kids and your family? Hey, it's not, listen, I'm suing you and I'm, da, 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 da. and she just was off. And he was like, you're avoiding the question. What have you done for yourself? You know, the difference between right and wrong, because you know, you wouldn't be doing X or you would have done this. So what have you done? And it shocked me. And I was like, well, initially I was like, that was a bit hard. Anyway, she had to be taken out because she was shouting and screaming. And um, he then said to me, look, I'm not trying to be, he said, I've been working with patients like this for nearly 30 years. And he said, I've seen a lot of patients come in. And at some point there has to come a level of accountability. They have, he said, I know what therapy would probably be useful for her. But if I prescribe that to her and she starts that, she goes in and starts shouting and swearing at everyone, it will, the sessions will immediately stop. So it's no point me putting her up for that at the moment. She has to come to the middle and, 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 and say, I want this. Yeah. And that really shifted things for me. And, and so now when I speak to her, I have very kind of adult conversations. I say, mum, that's got nothing to do with me. Just very matter of fact, mum, that's got nothing to do. It doesn't matter if you've got this boyfriend living in your house that you've, you, you, know, you got him to move in and he's stolen something off it. I said, that's not my issue. That's yeah. not nothing to do with me. And wow. I've done as much as I possibly can. That's huge. Yeah. Being able to hold that boundary. And this is literally in the last two weeks. And, and I realized, and I may not have this totally right at the moment. And again, we're constantly learning and evolving, but I realized at the moment it's for the sake of my family and friends around me that I cannot take on that stuff because then it ends up just going out and, and, and it's well, my responsibility. Mental health and then well. I need to be looking at it as for, you know, now I need to be looking and going, actually, this is not good for you, Danny, because I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it from the aspect of look after your friends and those around you, but I need to look at it as 
look after yourself as well. Completely. Um, before I ask my final question yes. and get your, you know, master yogi advice, yeah. um, where can people find you if they want to connect, hear your story, get you in to speak or whatever? Yeah, I, 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 there's LinkedIn, which is, um, I'm not very good with all these things, but um, yeah, LinkedIn, you'll find me on as Danny Rahim. Um, Speakers Collective, um, you know, is, is a company that I, I work with. Um, so the Speakers Collective or TLC Lions and their two groups, but also there's a, an, a, a, as a, a wealth of an abundance of speakers on both of those sites that cover lots and lots of topics. So if anybody's interested in, you know, or need someone to come in and, and address a particular issue, there's lots of really, really cool, cool speakers on both those, including Petra. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, fine. Uh, we'll, we'll add that into the show notes. So people yeah. can find you and connect with you. Um, and then finally, this is what I'm curious about because I used to be a youth worker. That's like my mm -hmm. background. So yeah, I used I to work with young carers. Um, yeah. I used to work with young offenders and there's often, it was very interesting. The first, um, well, one of the first kids that made a massive impression on me was this 16 year old kid who claimed to be a white supremacist okay and you can imagine the narrative of yeah. sort of hate and difference that was coming out of his mouth and i had the privilege of meeting with him once a week for a year mm -hmm. um, as he decided on college or the next steps and the the reality was that his mom was at home and he was the only child of a mom with a heart condition mm -hmm. and he, he, he was ruled by fear in a way and this need to be the adult in the situation with his mom. Um, and he would hustle and do little, you know, jobs on the side to make money. And he was the most inventive, resourceful kid that I knew. But essentially, that was my first window into the life of a young carer who, on mm -hmm. the one hand, had to project this image of himself to stay strong so that he wouldn't crumble underneath mm -hmm. the actual experience that was his life. So my question to you, yeah. what advice would you give to your 14-year-old self or a kid who's in a similar situation of needing to be the adult and deal with so many things at one time? Mm -hmm. um, what can they do? Um, what, what respect would you show them? What skills? What, what knowledge? I don't know. What, what advice would you give? Yeah, just, just as, as before that, just a small thing to know. It, isn't it so interesting we take people, we see people on face as one thing, but we ask the question, why, why are they like that and how that evolution occurs? And it, it, it's, it's so nice when you realize that a person just isn't what they, they seem on the face. And, and actually there no, are reasons and you, yeah. you help them make that, that, those discoveries for themselves. I mean, that is one of the, the main reasons I do this as well. You know, why, why is that individual like this? Um, what advice would I give um, to my 14 year old self? Um, uh, you're doing great life will always throw twists and turns your way um you know that is just life and that will happen for any human being um but it's 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 how it's our matter of perspective and how we deal with those that's important how do we see that particular situation and how do we deal with it and also um you know i, I guess that would be is a glass half full or half empty but also to look after yourself to make sure that you're 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 allocating time for yourself like what are my needs and and to take that time to sit and reflect what do i need what how is this making me feel because med i don't even think i knew even even heard of meditation and things back there and i'm not encouraging everyone to go and start meditating but for me meditation mindfulness is just sitting in a nice relaxed space and allowing yourself to think and just address it what are those thoughts why am i thinking that why do i feel sad and just asking yourself those questions and essentially connecting with yourself so in a very long-winded way, it would be reassurance to my 14, 16-year-old self. Yeah. Life will constantly throw twists and turns at you, and you know, it's a matter of how we perceive those. And to allow yourself space for yourself and listen to your body because your body will tell you what it needs. It really will. So profound. Danny, thank you so much. What a beautiful sort of window into a journey from the worst adversity that is still showing up in your life. And I think it's really important for people to know that it isn't all often the hero's journey that's just yeah. perfect and tough and then beautiful. It's like, no, you learn to live with things in a different way and invest in yourself and build your resilience so that you can cope with the difficulties that are there. They don't just magically disappear. Exactly. Danny, thank you so much for your time. We really My appreciate pleasure. it. Thank you very much, Petra. Have a lovely day.
Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. And please do get in touch through PetraBelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.